Chapter Ten of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Ten, Tribulation. Mr. Harding was a sadder man than he had ever yet been when he returned to his own house. He had been wretched enough on that well-remembered morning when he was forced to expose before his son-in-law the publisher's account for ushering into the world his dear book of sacred music, when after making such payments as he could do unassisted, he found that he was a debtor of more than three hundred pounds, but his sufferings then were as nothing to his present misery. Then he had done wrong, and he knew it, and he was able to resolve that he would not sin in like manner again. But now he could make no resolution, and comfort himself by no promises of firmness. He had been forced to think that his lot had placed him in a false position, and he was about to maintain that position against the opinion of the world and against his own convictions. He had read with pity, amounting almost to horror, the strictures which had appeared from time to time against the Earl of Guildford as Master of St. Cross, and the invectives that had been heaped on rich dioceses and dignitaries and overgrown sinecure pluralists. In judging of them, he judged leniently. The whole bias of his profession had taught him to think that they were more sinned against than sinning, and that the animosity with which they had been pursued was venomous and unjust. But he had not the less regarded their plight as most miserable. His hair had stood on end and his flesh had crept as he read the things which had been written. He had wondered how men could live under such a load of disgrace how they could face their fellow-creatures while their names were bandied about so injuriously and so publicly. And now this lot was to be his. He, that shy, retiring man, who had so comforted himself in the hidden obscurity of his lot, who had so enjoyed the unassuming warmth of his own little corner, he was now dragged forth into the glaring day, and gibbeted before ferocious multitudes. He entered his own house a crestfallen, humiliated man, without a hope of overcoming the wretchedness which affected him. He wandered into the drawing-room where was his daughter, but he could not speak to her now, so he left it, and went into the book-room. He was not quick enough to escape Eleanor's glance, or to prevent her from seeing that he was disturbed, and in a little while she followed him. She found him seated in his accustomed chair with no book open before him, no pen ready in his hand, no ill-shapen notes of blotted music lying before him as was usual, none of those hospital accounts with which he was so precise and yet so unmethodical. He was doing nothing, thinking of nothing, looking at nothing. He was merely suffering. "'Leave me, Eleanor, my dear,' he said. Leave me, my darling, for a few minutes, for I am busy. Eleanor saw well how it was, but she did leave him, and glided silently back to her drawing-room. When he had sat a while, thus alone and unoccupied, he got up to walk again. He could make more of his thoughts walking than sitting, and was creeping out into his garden when he met Bunce on the threshold. Well, Bunce, said he, in a tone that for him was sharp. "'What is it? Do you want me?' "'I was only coming to ask after your reverence,' said the old beadsman, touching his hat, "'and to inquire about the news from London,' he added after a pause. 
the warden winced, and put his hand to his forehead and felt bewildered. "'Attorney Finney has been here this morning,' continued Bunce, "'and by his looks I guess he is not so well pleased as he once was, "'and it has got abroad somehow that the Archdeacon has had down great news from London, "'and Handy and Moody are both as black as devils. "'And I hope,' said the man, trying to assume a cheery tone, "'that things are looking up, that there'll be an end soon to all this stuff "'which bothers your reverence so sorely.' "'Well, I wish there may be, Bunce.' "'But about the news, your reverence?' said the old man, almost whispering. Mr. Harding walked on and shook his head impatiently. Poor Bunce little knew how he was tormenting his patron. "'If there was anything to cheer you, I should be glad to know it,' said he, with a tone of affection which the warden in all his misery could not resist. He stopped and took both the old man's hands in his. "'My friend,' said he, my dear old friend, there's nothing. There is no news to cheer me. God's will be done. And two small hot tears broke away from his eyes and stole down his furrowed cheeks. Then God's will be done, said the other solemnly. But they told me that there was good news from London, and I came to wish your reverence joy. But God's will be done. And so the warden again walked on, and the beadsman, looking wistfully after him and receiving no encouragement to follow, returned sadly to his own abode. For a couple of hours the warden remained thus in the garden, now walking, now standing motionless on the turf, and then, as his legs got weary, sitting unconsciously on the garden seats, and then walking again. And Eleanor, hidden behind the muslin curtains of the window, watched him through the trees as he now came in sight, and then again was concealed by the turnings of the walk. And thus the time passed away till five, when the warden crept back to the house and prepared for dinner. It was but a sorry meal. The demure parlour-maid, as she handed the dishes and changed the plates, saw that all was not right, and was more demure than ever. Neither father nor daughter could eat, and the hateful food was soon cleared away, and the bottle of port placed upon the table. "'Would you like Bunce to come in, Papa?' said Eleanor, thinking that the company of the old man might lighten his sorrow. "'No, my dear, thank you, not to-day. But are you not going out, Eleanor, this lovely afternoon? Don't stay in for me, my dear.' "'I thought you seemed so sad, Papa.' sad said he irritated well people must all have their share of sadness here i am not more exempt than another but kiss me dearest and go now i will if possible be more sociable when you return and eleanor was again banished from her father's sorrow ah her desire now was not to find him happy but to be allowed to share his sorrows not to force him to be sociable but to persuade him to be trustful she put on her bonnet as desired and went up to Mary Bold. This was now her daily haunt, for John Bold was up in London among lawyers and church reformers, diving deep into other questions than that of the wardenship of Barchester, supplying information to one member of Parliament and dining with another, subscribing to funds for the abolition of clerical incomes, and seconding at that great national meeting at the Crown and Anchor, a resolution to the effect that no clergyman of the Church of England, be he who he might, 
should have more than a thousand a year, and none less than two hundred and fifty. His speech on this occasion was short, for fifteen had to speak, and the room was hired for two hours only, at the expiration of which the Quakers and Mr. Cobden were to make use of it for an appeal to the public in aid of the Emperor of Russia. But it was sharp and effective. At least he was told so by a companion with whom he now lived much, and on whom he greatly depended. One Tom Towers, a very leading genius, and supposed to have high employment on the staff of the Jupiter. So Eleanor, as was now her wont, went up to Mary Bold, and Mary listened kindly while the daughter spoke much of her father, and perhaps kinder still found a listener in Eleanor while she spoke about her brother. In the meantime the warden sat alone, leaning on the arm of his chair. He had poured out a glass of wine, but had done so merely from habit, for he left it untouched. There he sat, gazing at the open window and thinking, if he can be said to have thought, of the happiness of his past life. All manner of past delights came before his mind, which at the time he had enjoyed without considering them. His easy days, his absence of all kind of hard work, his pleasant shady home, those twelve old neighbors whose welfare till now had been the source of so much pleasant care, the excellence of his children, the friendship of the dear old bishop, the solemn grandeur of those vaulted aisles, through which he loved to hear his own voice pealing, and then that friend of friends, that choice ally that had never deserted him, that eloquent companion that would always, when asked, discourse such pleasant music, that violoncello of his. Ah, how happy he had been! But it was over now. His easy days and absence of work had been the crime which brought on him his tribulation. His shady home was pleasant no longer. Maybe it was no longer his. The old neighbors, whose welfare had been so desired by him, were his enemies. His daughter was as wretched as himself, and even the bishop was made miserable by his position. He could never again lift up his voice boldly as he had hitherto done among his brethren, for he felt that he was disgraced, and he feared even to touch his bow, for he knew how grievous a sound of wailing, how piteous a lamentation it would produce. He was still sitting in the same chair and the same posture, having hardly moved a limb for two hours, when Eleanor came back to tea and succeeded in bringing him with her into the drawing-room. The tea seemed as comfortless as the dinner, though the warden, who had hitherto eaten nothing all day, devoured the plateful of bread and butter, unconscious of what he was doing. Eleanor had made up her mind to force him to talk to her, but she hardly knew how to commence. She must wait till the urn was gone, till the servant would no longer be coming in and out. At last everything was gone, and the drawing-room door was permanently closed. Then Eleanor, getting up and going round to her father, put her arm round his neck and said, Papa, won't you tell me what it is? What what is, my dear? This new sorrow that torments you. I know you are unhappy, Papa. New sorrow? It's no new sorrow, my dear. We all have our cares sometimes. And he tried to smile, but it was a ghastly failure. "'But I shouldn't be so dull a companion. Come, we'll, we'll have some music.' "'No, Papa, not tonight. It would only trouble you tonight.' 
and she sat upon his knee as she sometimes would in their gayest moods, and with her arm around his neck she said, "'Papa, I will not leave you till you talk to me. Oh, if you only knew how much good it would do to you to tell me of it all!' The father kissed his daughter and pressed her to his heart, but still he said nothing. It was so hard to him to speak of his own sorrows. He was so shy a man, even with his own child. "'Oh, Papa, do tell me what it is. I know it is about the hospital and what they're doing up in London and what that cruel newspaper has said. But if there be such cause for sorrow, let us be sorrowful together. We are all in all to each other now. Dear, dear Papa, do speak to me.' Mr. Harding could not well speak now, for the warm tears were running down his cheeks like rain in May, but he held his child close to his heart, and squeezed her hand as a lover might, and she kissed his forehead and his wet cheeks, and lay upon his bosom and comforted him as a woman only can do. "'My own child,' he said, as soon as his tears would let him speak. "'My own, own child.' Why should you too be unhappy before it is necessary? It may come to that, that we must leave this place, but till that time comes, why should your young days be clouded? And is that all, Papa? If that be all, let us leave it, and have light hearts elsewhere. If that be all, let us go. Oh, Papa, you and I could be happy if we only had bread to eat, so long as our hearts were light." and Eleanor's face was lighted up with enthusiasm as she told her father how he might banish all his care, and a gleam of joy shot across his brow as this idea of escape again presented itself, and he again fancied for a moment that he could spurn away from him the income which the world envied him, that he could give the lie to that wielder of the tomahawk who had dared to write such things of him in the Jupiter, then he could leave Sir Abraham and the Archdeacon and Bold and the rest of them with their lawsuit among them, and wipe his hands altogether of so sorrow-stirring a concern. Ah, what happiness might there be in the distance, with Eleanor and him in some small cottage, and nothing left of their former grandeur but their music. Yes, they would walk forth with their music-books and their instruments, and shaking the dust from off their feet as they went, leave the ungrateful place. Never did a poor clergyman sigh for a warm benefice, more anxiously than our warden did now to be rid of his. "'Give it up, Papa,' she said again, jumping from his knees and standing on her feet before him, looking boldly into his face. "'Give it up, Papa.' Oh, it was sad to see how that momentary gleam of joy passed away how the look of hope was dispersed from that sorrowful face as the remembrance of the archdeacon came back upon our poor warden, and he reflected that he could not stir from his now hated post. He was as a man bound with iron, fettered with adamant. He was in no respect a free agent. He had no choice. Give it up! Oh, if he only could! What an easy way that were out of all his troubles! "'Papa, don't doubt about it,' she continued, thinking that his hesitation arose from his unwillingness to abandon so comfortable a home. "'Is it on my account that you would stay here? Do you think that I cannot be happy without a pony carriage and a fine drawing-room? Papa, I never can be happy here, as long as there's a question as to your honor in staying here. 
but I could be gay as the day is long in the smallest tiny little cottage, if I could see you come in and go out with a light heart. Oh, Papa, your face tells so much, though you won't speak to me with your voice. I know how it is with you every time I look at you. How he pressed her to his heart again with almost a spasmodic pressure. How he kissed her as the tears fell like rain from his old eyes. How he blessed her and called her by a hundred soft, sweet names which now came new to his lips. How he chid himself for ever, having been unhappy with such a treasure in his house, such a jewel on his bosom, with so sweet a flower in the choice garden of his heart. And then the floodgates of his tongue were loosed, and at length, with unsparing detail of circumstances, he told her all that he wished, and all that he could not do. He repeated those arguments of the archdeacon, not agreeing in their truth, but explaining his inability to escape from them. How it had been declared to him that he was bound to remain where he was by the interests of his order, by gratitude to the bishop, by the wishes of his friends, by a sense of duty which, though he could not understand it, he was fain to acknowledge. He told her how he had been accused of cowardice, and though he was not a man to make much of such a charge before the world, now, in the full candor of his heart, he explained to her that such an accusation was grievous to him, that he did think it would be unmanly to desert his post, merely to escape his present sufferings, and that therefore he must bear as best he might the misery which was prepared for him. And did she find these details tedious? Oh, no, she encouraged him to dilate on every feeling he expressed, till he laid bare the inmost corners of his heart to her. They spoke together of the archdeacon, as two children might of a stern, unpopular, but still respected schoolmaster, and of the bishop as a parent, kind as kind could be, but powerless against an omnipotent pedagogue. And then, when they had discussed all this, when the father had told all to the child, she could not be less confiding than he had been, and as John Bold's name was mentioned between them, she owned how well she had learned to love him. Had loved him once, she said, but she would not, could not do so now. No, even had her troth been plighted to him, she would have taken it back again. Had she sworn to love him as his wife, she would have discarded him, and not felt herself forsworn, when he proved himself the enemy of her father. But the warden declared that Bold was no enemy of his, and encouraged her love, and gently rebuked as he kissed her the stern resolve she had made to cast him off. And then he spoke to her of happier days when their trials would all be over, and declared that her young heart should not be torn asunder to please either priest or prelate, dean or archdeacon, no, not if all Oxford were to convocate together and agree as to the necessity of the sacrifice. And so they greatly comforted each other, and in what sorrow will not such mutual confidence give consolation? And with a last expression of tender love they parted, and went comparatively happy to their rooms. End of chapter 10 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota